This is Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of media. I'm Edgar Cruz. And I'm Jakia Fuller. Tonight on this special edition of Generation Justice, we offer three perspectives on race, media, and the 50th anniversary of the Kerner Commission report. The National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, or the Kerner Commission, was established by President Lyndon Johnson to investigate the causes of social unrest after an especially violent five days in the summer of 1967. We'll hear from Fred Harris, former U.S. Senator of Oklahoma and published author who served on and is the last remaining member of the Kerner Commission. Janine Jackson, Program Director of FAIR, the Media Watch Group, and co-producer and host of FAIR's syndicated radio show, Counterspin. And also Joseph Torres, Senior Director of Strategy and Engagement for Free Press and co-author of the New York Times bestseller, News for All the People, the epic story of race in the American media. Throughout this evening's production, we'll feature the music that documented the tension and inequities of the 1960s. That was In the Ghetto by Donny Hathaway. As we review the 50 years since the publication of the Kerner Report, we speak with the remaining member of the Kerner Commission, Fred Harris, who at the time was a popular senator from Oklahoma. Fred Harris joins Generation Justice Director Roberta Rael to help us understand the history and role media played before, during, and after the Commission's report. Fred Harris is an American politician, educator, and writer who served as a U.S. Senator from Oklahoma from 1964 to 1973. In 1967, Harris and others persuaded President Lyndon Johnson to form the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, also known as the Kerner Commission. Fred, I want to welcome you to Generation Justice. Thank you. Will you please give us a little bit of the history of the Kerner Commission and the Kerner Report? Well, in the summer of 1967, there were riots and violent protests in a large number of cities throughout the country with killing of people, most of them innocent people, most of them black people, and burnings and lootings and a great disorder. The worst were uh, worst of these riots were in uh, Detroit and Newark. President Johnson had to call out the army troops in order to finally quell those. And in the midst of that uh, Detroit riot, while it was still going on, he appointed a Blue Ribbon Citizens Commission called the uh, Kerner Commission because the the chair of it was uh, Governor Otto Kerner of Illinois. The actual name of the commission was the President's National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders. And he appointed me and 10 others to this commission. We uh, undertook hearings for 20 straight days, hearing from everybody from J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and others. And then we divided up into teams. John Lindsay, the mayor of New York, and I were a team and went out in the country and visited actual riot cities, as did a lot of our staff. And then we met for 40 straight days 
and voted on every word uh, that was in our report. The central thing we said was that our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. And further, we said, white people really have never fully understood, but Negroes, as we said in those days, have always known, is that the black ghettos were uh, established by white people, by their actions, and they were sustained that way. We found in these riot cities wretched poverty and deprivation, enormous discrimination on the basis of race and ethnicity, criminally inferior schools, terrible housing, no transportation, and no jobs. And so we made uh, very strong recommendations in all those fields. And the great problem was that President Johnson, who had appointed us and told us his exact words were, find the truth and express it in your report. That's what we did. But he was misinformed about what we found and said, and he rejected the report. Thank you so much for that history. I understand that President Johnson did not fully release the report, and therefore the commissioners had to go through other means to get it distributed. Yes, we wanted to be sure that it could not be suppressed. So we made a deal with the Bannum Books to bring out a paperback edition of it, exactly on the day, the official date of the report, which was March 1st. And that book was a wildly runaway bestseller. It went through 23 printings. And we had also, in order to um, get people to see what we'd seen through our eyes and uh, know what we knew, we put out the report with an embargo to media people because we wanted to have time for them to study it and for us to answer their questions about it and explain it prior to the time that they would actually report it. We knew that recommending the kind of great new federal programs cost we said, yes, these are going to cost a lot. And the fact that we used for the first time in an official document the word racism. We knew White that, racism. Yes. We knew that was going to be controversial. And so we wanted to background people a while. But we didn't have that opportunity as it turned out. Somebody leaked the report with evil intent, intending to lessen its impact. And so we just turned it loose to everybody, of course. The Washington Post said, we're going to report this in the morning. And consequently, uh, there was just chaos. An Associated Press reporter called me, for example, that night, and he said, uh, I have a 30-minute deadline. This is a report that's 600 pages long. I have a 30-minute deadline. Could you just sort of capsulize it for me? And the result was headlines everywhere, white racism, cause of black riots, commission says. So the way that the media covered it also skewed how the report and the information from the report got received. Right. I would love for you to talk about that, and I'd love for you to talk about then moving into what did the report say about media coverage? What we found was that the media reports sensationalized the riots and focused on the police. It didn't really get into any depth at all to the wretched conditions where people were living. For example, they didn't put in context the terrible hostilities that existed in these places against the police. The police were virtually all white. They came in during the daytime. They lived somewhere else. They came in during the daytime more or less to enforce the law against these people instead of enforcing the law for them. So we said, among other things, about the police that they ought to look like the people with whom they're 
dealing. And we ought to do away with this militarization of the police, which was already beginning. No place for tanks and automatic rifles and so forth in the urban situation. And we recommended what came to be called community policing. That not just enforcing the law, but involved in all of the aspects of the community's life. What I said about the police was also something that we talked about with the media. They were virtually all white. So what one thing we said was there ought to be many more Hispanics and African-Americans and others, uh, minorities in the media. The other thing we said about the media was that they didn't talk about why were people so hostile toward the police, the grievances that they had. I mean, they were well-founded. And they didn't focus on the terrible conditions where these people who were involved in the disorders were living. So there's no context. And therefore, I think a great many people, white people, were enormously surprised. Why are they so dissatisfied? We've passed the Civil Rights Act of 64, and we passed the Voting Rights Act, and uh, we're trying to do something about segregation in the South and so forth. They had no idea how so many of their fellow Americans were having to live. The journalism schools and others have got to pay more attention to underlying causes and conditions and well in advance and uh, let people know about these conditions that still exist. I think public officials have a great uh, responsibility as well. It's been a long, long time since we've had a serious candidate for president of either party who's even uttered the words poverty. Everybody talks about the middle class. For example, years ago, poverty got onto the national agenda primarily because John Kennedy, as a candidate for president, went into Appalachia with the national press following him and talked with and saw those poor coal miners and other people living in desperate conditions, and the reporters reported it. Robert Kennedy, we'd learned more about racism and poverty in the Black Delta of Mississippi because Kennedy went there with the press in tow. The media's better covering actual events. And so uh, politicians ought to take them with them and go and actually see how people are living and see the conditions there. Thank you for that. You just heard Inner City Blues by Marvin Gaye, which captures the sentiments of black communities in the inner cities of America during the late 60s. Thank you so much, Mr. Harris, for sharing the history of the commission and for pointing out the lack of coverage on the living conditions of black America. It is fascinating to get a glimpse into the development and mission from an original member of the Kerner Commission. And now we bring you Janine Jackson, a professional equity media critic. Janine Jackson is the program director of FAIR, which stands for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, a media watchdog organization based in New York, which analyzes media for biases and missing contexts and voices. Janine joins my co-host, Edgar Cruz. This is Edgar Cruz with Generation Justice. Joining us today is Janine Jackson, Program Director at FAIR, 
the Media Watch Group, producer and host of FAIR's syndicated radio show, Counterspin. She contributes frequently to FAIR's newsletter, Extra. Her articles have also appeared in various publications, including In These Times and the UAW's Solidarity, and in books including Civil Rights Since 1787 and Stop the Next War Now, Effective Responses to Violence and Terrorism. Welcome, Janine. Happy to be here. Janine, would you please introduce yourself? Well, I am the program director at FAIR, which is a media watch group. We take a look at U.S news media, the corporate media, and try to talk about some alternative perspectives on the stories of the day. And that's what I try to do on Counterspin as well, is bring on folks who have something different to say about what's in the news. Janine, help us understand that historical context of the late 60s during the time that the report findings were released. Well, the Kerner Commission report came out in 1968 after several years of really violent unrest in cities across the country. More than 100 cities across the United States saw uprisings in 67 and in the years before that. And so the Kerner Commission report was Johnson trying to say, let's figure out what caused this, what caused these riots was the term they used at the time. And one of the sections and the section that interested me was a section in the report that said, what role did news media play in leading to this civil unrest? It's just a tiny part of the whole report. And it was very interesting because what most folks remember about what Kerner said about journalism was, first of all, they blamed news media. They said that news media had something to do with driving a wedge between black people and white people in this country, and that that had something to do with the civil unrest of 1967 and of the 60s. And what they thought that journalists problem was was that they were completely out of touch with black communities and particularly with urban communities. And so they called for an increase of representation, that they just needed to be more black journalists, more black people in newsrooms. And that's what most folks remember from a media perspective about Kerner is that it called for more people of color and specifically for more African-Americans to be hired. And that happened to some extent, but then that hiring flagged. And as folks may know, the representation is not really a tremendous amount forward in 2018 than it was in 1968 when Kerner came out. You know, we still don't have newsrooms that look like America. And you spoke on representation and from the report's findings, how did we still miss the mark on shifting this narrative from a predominantly white male focus? Well, that's what's interesting about Kerner. The really forward and kind of radical thing about the Kerner report was that it said that it isn't just about getting more people of color in the newsroom. The problem is that news media are reported from the respective of a white man's world. It actually used that term. And that part, even though the media industry kind of pretended to embrace and for a while did embrace the hiring part, they never really grappled with the idea of shifting the perspective of the idea that the problem was that the news media did not really treat black people and other people of color as though they existed, as though they were part of society. And that part of Kerner, I don't think, has ever really been engaged. You know, we haven't really addressed the way, the extent to which news media really comes at events, at news events from a white perspective and from, a, I would say, a wealthy white perspective. 
the call of Kerner was misunderstood because there was a sense that if we just hired more, if we could just get more black people into journalism, then somehow journalism would change and it would take on a more diverse and inclusive perspective in terms of its content, as long as we got those numbers, as long as we got people in. Media have not recognized that that is not sufficient, that it's a matter of priorities, of what you decide is a story, of what you decide is important, of who you decide is an expert. It's not simply who's in the room, but it's the choices that are made that determine whether or not media really is reflective of the diverse society that we have. So when I say Kerner was misinterpreted, I really think it was only partially understood as meaning get more blacks in the newsroom and not really understood as meaning we have to get to the root of what we think is newsworthy, who we think is important, who is at the center of the news. That's what has to change. That part of it has not ever really been adequately addressed. And then it has this real blind spot when it comes to this structural question about corporate ownership. There's a moment in Kerner where it's almost parenthetical where it says pressures, competitive financial advertising may impede progress toward balanced in-depth coverage and toward the hiring and training of more Negro personnel. That's the term they use. And I think they really overlook the importance of corporate sponsorship and ownership in influencing the content of the news. You know, corporate media outlets have relationships with politicians. They have relationships with the police. They have relationships with other corporations. And those really shape their journalistic priorities and give them that kind of top-down bias. That is what I talk about. And that's really outside of individual journalists. You know, that really is the climate that individual journalists have to work in. And Kerner didn't really address that. So there's a race that is structurally baked into corporate media because of the finances, because of who they answer to, because of the fact that they answer to corporate owners and sponsors and not to community that Kerner never really grappled with. And why is the Kerner Commission report on media so important today, 50 years later? Well, I think the reason that people are so struck by Kerner today, even though it seems like a long time ago, is that we really seem to be living through so much of a similar time, particularly with regard to police violence and state violence against people of color. We still are seeing what a profound disconnect there is between the lives of people of color and the media that you turn on the television and see. I mean, to use a recent example, when news media call Philadelphia Eagles fans who are overwhelmingly white, who are breaking into stores, who are tearing down lampposts, and they're described as unruly people who are just having a good time you know, but Black Lives Matter activists or other activists who are protesting people of color being killed by police who behave in nonviolent ways, who may do the same thing in terms of breaking a window or, you know, breaking a car window, that's described as dangerous violence. I think it's very obvious to people that there's something going on there, that the media are not being neutral observers of what's going on, but they are in fact kind of reinforcing 
adopting this top-down state mentality or view of the world that says that this status quo in which some people are oppressed and some people are wildly wealthy, that that's okay, that you don't need to ask questions about that, that you shouldn't protest that, you certainly shouldn't go out in the street about that, that that's dangerous, that protesters are violent. All of that is coming from a media that are not living up to the standards of journalism, but are instead acting as corporate actors. And so it isn't a matter of saying journalism is bad. Journalism is, in fact, a great hope. Journalism is the way we learn about one another and the way we learn about what's going on in the world. The problem is the structure of the media industry in the United States today. And so when I think about Kerner and why it's important to say, yes, we need media that does not simply tell the world from a white male perspective, I also understand that the way to get to media that doesn't tell the world from a white male perspective is to get to media that is not owned by white males. I know that you're writing on the findings of the Kerner Commission report. What can you tell us about that? Well, I am writing a piece that's going to talk about the Kerner Commission report and the radical elements of it in terms of recognizing that it's not about sensitivity training, that if we want media to do better on race, we have to get more people of color into journalism. But then the sort of limitations of Kerner and not recognizing that that alone would not be enough to really shift the perspective of the news that we see. So in some ways, I think for a 50-year-old document, it's very radical and cutting edge. And I also think that the points that it misses are actually very interesting in themselves, and particularly the point about corporate ownership and the role that that plays. So I think thinking about Kerner, even though it's not a perfect document, I think thinking about it is something that's very much worth our time in 2018. Any words of wisdom for groups like Generation Justice who approach media making from a race equity lens? How do we stay strong in this media climate? Well, I think that groups like Generation Justice are answering a need, you know, and are really responding to a hunger. So uh, there's nothing to feel but happiness because people are calling out for news of the world that talks to them, you know, and that speaks to them from a perspective that relates to their lives and that is not about, you know, how did necessarily the stock market move today, you know, but that actually brings them the news of the day in a way that is useful and that shows them people who look like them. I mean, people are just thirsty for that. So people are increasingly recognizing that the corporate media don't have their best interests at heart, are not telling them everything they need to know, and are certainly not letting them hear all the voices that they need to hear. So folks like Generation Justice who are finding new ways to do it and who are making it much more of a grassroots person-to-person kind of communication are the future, seriously, and that the road is only up in that direction. So I think folks should stand strong because they're providing something that folks really need and want. Thank you so much, Jenny. We certainly appreciate those wise, wise words. Anything else you want to cover in this conversation? I just would like to say I think it's really important that folks believe in journalism and the power of journalism to tell our stories to one another. That's really what's going to move us out 
result of the difficult time that we're in. So don't give up on journalism. Don't give up on speaking to one another. It's just a matter of making places where we can really hear one another's voices without uh, folks getting in between. Thank you so much, Janine. I, I really appreciate this conversation with you. And from the bottom of my heart, I am just so, so grateful for having you in this field of work advocating for this honesty and truth in media. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And with Generation Justice, this is Edgar Cruz. Janine, I really appreciate your strong analysis of the Kerner Report, the role media played in creating civil unrest then and now, which is so relevant to our current climate. Thank you again, Janine. Your striking insight on the way media failed Black lives in the 60s leaves us with these questions. Who benefited from the sensationalized reporting on Black people? And why isn't the pain of people of color newsworthy? Here is Ball of Confusion by The Temptations, which highlights the conditions of the United States during the late 60s and 70s. Now, Joe Torres unpacks the narratives that heightened the mistrust Black Americans and people of color felt toward the media. Joe is Senior Director of Strategy and Engagement for Free Press and co-author of News for All the People, sharing his insight on media from a racial justice lens. Now, GJ's youth producer, 17-year-old Kenya Alonso, speaks with Joe Torres. This is Kenya Alonso with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with Joseph Torres, Senior Executive of Strategy and Engagement at Free Press and co-author of News for All the People, a New York Times bestseller. Joe, welcome to Generation Justice. Would you please tell us more about yourself? Sure. I work for Free Press, which is a public interest group. We work on make sure that media telecom policy serve a public good, and more importantly, how to get the voices of everyday people involved in these really critical fights about issues like the future of the internet and broadband and media to get them involved because of the impact media and communication has on the daily lives of people. And so I work on that, and I'm a former journalist. I still like to do journalism, but not in the, the formal way. And I am a co-author of a book, and he's worked for the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. I'm a media advocate, media activist right now. Would you tell us about News for All the People? Sure. News for All the People is a book I co-author with Juan Gonzalez, who's a legendary journalist, media activist in his own right, a Latino leader in his own right as well. We wrote this book that came out in 2011. It was a project that we worked on for about eight years. When Juan was the uh, president of the National Association Hispanic journalist, and I was his deputy director. We wanted to educate journalists or to get journalists of color engaged in the importance of issues of media policy and media consolidation and impact it would have on people of color, journalists of color. And so we wrote a white paper called How Long Must We Wait in 2004 that we handed out at the Unity Journalists of Color Convention, which was the largest journalistic convention in the world at the time. We had a journalists from Native American Journalists Association, Asian American Journalists Association, and Hispanic Journalists Association, Black Journalists Association. And we were asked to turn that white paper into a book that resulted in this book that we uh, wrote and has really helped to inform the work I still do today at Free Press and the issues I fight for and also my concerns and fears about people of color and what's the future of our country and the ability of people of color to be able to fight for their own self-determination. So this book is really um, 
helped me to uh, my own personal growth of understanding who I am as a Puerto Rican growing up in New York City and what's my relationship to this country, you know, and just my place in the world. It was like, it really helped me interpersonally to understand myself better. Actually, last summer when I interned with GJ, we read News for All the People. So I just want to say thank you for writing something that was like so informative and I learned a lot from it. So thank you. Me too. I learned a lot from working on it. You're welcome. And we never anticipated that that was going to be the book, but it was a journey for us too. And we're still on that journey, you know. So thank you. Thank you so much for that, for those words. Now, as the co-author of News for All the People, which gives us such a great understanding of the history of media in this country, what is the significance of the Kerner Report on media? During this time, there was great unrest in this country, particularly in 1967. There was a lot of uh, riots and urban unrest, and President Johnson formed this commission to understand the reasons and causes of these riots that happened. And so this report came out, and one of the chapters was devoted to the media, you know, and it talked about how the media played a role in fomenting greater mistrust. The black community did not trust the media, I believe it was part of a, working with the white power structure, and how it really didn't show black folks in as normal, like everyday people who like have uh, children who are, you know, live and die and have these full lives. And it really shined a light on the inequities that exist in the media system and how that contributed to this really false narrative of not only the riots, but of black folks. And so the report was an impactful report on the whole, but the chapter in the media really started to put much more greater pressure on the industry to start desegregating its newsrooms. And so it was a really an important contribution to the effort that was already happening in society in communities of color challenging media systems, challenging broadcast licenses at the time, because folks were demanding that their voice and stories are told in the news media and for the news media to stop harming people of color. And so this chapter really played a significant role in that effort, in that fight, and uh, that chapter in, in the Kerner Commission report. And uh, it led to changes at the American Society newspaper editors and, and other places where they started to have to put into place efforts to diversify newsrooms across the country. There's still some people who are in the newsrooms today or, you know, or folks who are local anchors across the country who are still on the air during this period of time of the late 60s into the 1970s that entered the newsroom because of these efforts by people to challenge our media system. And folks don't even know this happened, you know? And so a lot of this history is forgotten. And now in 2018, 50 years after the Kerner Commission report, from your perspective, what has changed? You know, I'm writing about this right now and I'm trying to get a handle on this question because it's complex in some ways, right? It's, to me, it's in, some way, in some ways, it's not complex. What hasn't changed and what has not changed from Kerner, uh, what has not changed since the very first words were printed in a newspaper in this country is the narrative about people of color. The narrative around people of color has not changed. And that is that people of color are a threat to society and all the uh, imagery and all the stories and, and the narrative that surrounds who we are is still the same. We have a president of the United States who's a racist watching a, a white nationalist government that's running on fear of the other, right? And using historical narratives about people of color that have been used time and time again in order to harm us. And it's used because it's been uh, successful in furthering the goals of folks who are uh, basically, uh, you know, demonizing people of color for their own political gains, you know? So that hasn't changed. But what has changed is the presence it's more of a presence of people of color, right, I guess, in everyday media. So there's more folks on your local newscast. There's more folks, you know, in say TV shows that say more people of color. And that narrative needs to change because it's hard to fight for any sort of justice or any sort of equity, particularly for communities of color, 
if you're demonized by a news narrative or by a narrative that harms you. And when you have that narrative, all sorts of policies could be passed as a result. And this is what you're seeing what's going on with it for years now, more in the news as we speak with, you know, DACA and immigrant students and, you know, how to just uh, try to conflate DACA students now with being uh, MS-13 and like gangsters and terrorists and all this other stuff, right? And so while we have more people to come in the newsroom, these narratives are still working. And I believe personally they are working because they're serving a political purpose and they're doing their jobs. We have been successful in interrupting that narrative from time to time, right? And we're living in a moment where people of color have been able to interrupt the narrative, right? And when it comes to the open internet, but yet at the same time, there's an effort to kill the open internet and to allow gatekeepers to continue to allow them to block and censor content. The future of the internet is very much it's still a question of what that future is going to look like and whether people of color will still have the ability not just to have presence on the Internet, but also have some power over their own health and well-being. Since the topic of narratives came up, what needs to be in place for communities of color narratives to be fully honored? Well, you work for a place that's a, uh, as an example. You know, you have to, it's about control and ownership, I feel, at the heart of it. And whether people of color have the ability to control their own stories and the right to tell their own stories without having to ask permission from gatekeepers. Because I'm talking to Generation Justice, and as an example of a place where uh, the work is done with a lot of joy and purpose, right, and understanding like it's actually making a contribution. I'm not saying there's not barriers to every place that you go, right? They're still dealing with other institutions, but you, have, you work in an institution where you can tell your own story. And unfortunately, there's not enough of those places. Why and I in our book, that's what we talk about in our book, how ownership and control is really a central part. It's just critical if people of color are actually going to achieve any sort of equity within our media system. If there was an equivalent of the Kerner Commission report today and you were in charge of it, what would it find or what would it say? You know, the fact that Trump is president in a lot of ways speaks to where we're at, right? And because he, he's a total media creation and he's been a racist his whole life, right? And yet, here he is able to have TV shows and be on TV. And even when he's talking about President Obama being, a, you know, like not born in this country and get on Saturday Night Live during the campaign after he said Mexicans are rapists, right? Thieves and all that, he, all that nonsense he said. And yet he was able to go on Saturday Night Live because he was funny. The head of CBS, right, said in 2016 that Donald Trump, he said this, I believe, was a Morgan Stanley investor conference, Morgan Stanley media conference. Donald Trump may be bad for America, but he's great for CBS. Go Donald. So after all this racism, misogyny, and all this hatred coming from this person, the companies were making tons of money off him, right? And then, then you have to take into account where we're going. Juan and I call our media system a de facto media apartheid system, right? And because we don't control anything, we control very little. 50 years ago, the demographic makeup of the country was then what is now is dramatically different. And yet we have fewer journalists working at daily newspapers, right, than we did just like 20 years ago, right? You know, uh, people of color, the last statistics still only own 3% of all broadcast television stations and like 8% or 7% of radio stations, right? And meanwhile, we're like 40% of the population. This does not bode well for our future if uh, we don't have access to the communication networks of the day to be able to tell your story and yet you make up soon to be the majority of the population already in cities across the country in the biggest cities in several states folks know so little about people of color and all that so i'm pessimistic at this moment there's a lot of people doing great things as i already mentioned but sometimes i think there isn't a great analysis of what is the collective power that we've been able to achieve to change the fundamental nature of, of the media system? Okay, thank you. Is sure. there anything else that you would like to add? I just think there's not enough of dreaming of the world that we want and deserve and then trying to collectively 
fight for it when it comes in the media space. And I think that's needed, you know, and I hope that happens in a way. It's not like people aren't doing things now, but I still think that we're too often fighting to prevent bad things from happening today. And we're really pulled thin oftentimes with lack of resources and to be able to address all the needs that we're able to address. So we're always trying to stop bad things from happening, right? And we have to find time and it's hard to dream of a bigger dream for us than just fighting reactively to what people do and have a more proactive vision of what we think we deserve. And when it comes to the media space, because the media is powerful, you know, it's a powerful institution that has the ability to shape and destroy lives and also uplift them as well, you know, and we need more uplifting. <laughs> so I guess the last thing I'll say about that, you know, that we need to have a collective vision for the future and fight for it. You know, and, you know, and the last thing also, the last thing I'll say that, you know, while we fight for the Internet, you know, we talk about media, we got to like also talk about these Facebook and Google and all these online tech companies and they're media gatekeepers, too. And they're, you know, they're using their algorithm, right, to continue is to put the stuff that appears in our feed, the stuff that totally antagonizes us, right? They're perpetuating a lot of falsehoods and narratives about people of color. They're very powerful gatekeepers over the news and information we receive. And they're also profiting off of uh, hate and hate speech, <laughs> you know, uh, against people of color. And so it's not just where we are with the media system, but the new media gatekeepers and what is their role in shaping our society and shaping our realities and shaping our narratives and their business models that also profit off for hate, you know? So when I say media today, you know, in stories, I'm really, and I should have made this clear, to me, it involves all of it. It involves the tech companies, it involves the traditional legacy media companies, it involves everyone that's a dominant media company that has a dominant influence over our lives, you know? Again, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to, you know, talk to us and share your knowledge on all of these topics. Yes. Uh, thank you, Kenya. I really enjoyed it. Anytime. This was Kenya Alonzo with Generation Justice. Joe explains how the media perpetuated a harmful narrative that shaped our national perspective of the Black experience. Thank you, Joe, for speaking to the importance of changing narratives by having the right and ability to tell and own our stories. Thank you, Joe, for reminding us how important it is to dream and envision for the world we want to live in. Here is Motor City is Burning by John Lee Hooker. We return to hear about Fred Harris's new book, and how he describes it as Kerner Report 2.0. So I'd like to talk about your new book, Healing Our Divided Society, Investing in America 50 Years After the Kerner Report. It's about to be released. Right. And what is the content of this book? Do you have analysis of the past 50 years? And if so, what are some of the highlights of the book? It really is a Kerner Report 2.0. It's an update of the Kerner Report of 1968. I'm a co-editor with Alan Curtis, who's the president of the Eisenhower Foundation. And we've done it with getting authorities from, for example, Nobel economist Joseph Stiglitz to the head of the Children's Defense Fund, Marion Wright Edelman, 
23 of them taking some aspect of what we dealt with in the Kerner report originally and bringing it up to date. What's the situation now Mm -hmm. and what needs to be done? It comes out in the last part of February, just like the report did itself. And what we say in, in this report, this basic message is this, that discrimination on the basis of race or ethnicity is worsening again. Mm-hmm. Segregation of schools and of housing, we're resegregating in the cities and the schools. And the inequality of income and wealth is much worse than it was. And poverty, there are far more, millions more people who are poor now than they were 50 years ago. And poor people today, a large percentage of them are in deep poverty. That is, their income is at or below the poverty level or one half of the poverty level. And then what we want to get across is these things are not only terrible for the people who are living them, but they're bad for all of us. Mm -hmm. That's not good for our country. If people could have jobs, we talk about jobs primarily, that's going to boost the economy for everybody. So these problems are not just the problems of black people or Hispanic people or poor people. They're all our problems. And doing something about these problems will be good for all of us because as my old Texas friend and populist Jim Hightower says, everybody does better when everybody does better. Absolutely. Thank you for that. What do we need to do in this moment in time to help to go back to your quote, we all do better when we all do better? I think we've gone several years when it just was not socially acceptable to be a racist right out, both in words and actions. But now I think with this last presidential campaign and the operations and so forth of this present administration, too many people, I think, feel that they're sort of given permission to express racist views. And worse than that, maybe even in violence, as we've seen some of these white supremacist operations. So that there are far more black churches, synagogues, mosques that now are being attacked and burned. And there's a great deal more violence against uh, groups like that, against LGBT people as well, people, anybody that's a little different from the dominant society. So I think that that's something that ought to worry us a great deal. Black Lives Matter, I think that's an illustration of the kind of thing we're going to have to have. Individuals have got to, and groups have got to raise hell themselves about this, and maybe the general media will follow, but also we need some way to help educate young people to a kind of a media sense that everything you see on Facebook in that echo chamber may not even be legitimate, may not even be by who... uh, the author says mm-hmm. he or she is. So there's a lot needs to be done, but it's going to depend on citizens groups like uh, Generation Justice and Black Lives Matter and others. But we can use that technology and make it a blessing for us, I think. I would think that that has been the same from the 40s, 50s, and 60s in this country, and even before, of course, that it was citizen groups who helped to push change to occur in this country. Right. People ask me, well, you sound optimistic that what you're now recommending in all these various programs and so forth, what makes you feel that they might be done? Well, I say, number one, I'm heartened by remembering that the civil rights movement led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis, people like John Lewis, who I think is a living saint, that started in a lot darker and worse times than now. The odds were really against them, but they resisted, they persisted, and they ultimately prevailed. They started out there with the people, and that's the kind of thing you're doing, and it's the kind of thing we need more of. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Thank you for that. 
Once again, it's been such a true pleasure to be able to spend this time with you. I thank you, and I cannot wait to read your book. Thank you for what you're doing, and thank you for having me. Mr. Harris, thank you for sharing your time with us here at Generation Justice. It is an honor to listen and learn from a true public servant. Thank you for joining us for this one-hour production on race, media, and the Kerner Commission Report. We encourage you to pick up Fred Harris's book, Healing Our Divided Society, Investing in America 50 Years After the Kerner Report, and Joe Torres' book, News for All the People, The Epic Story of Race in the American Media, and to follow the work of media critic Janine Jackson at FAIR and on Counterspin. We've concluded our special program on race, media, and the Kerner Commission Report. We would like to thank our guests, Fred Harris, Joe Torres, and Janine Jackson. Tonight's program was produced by Kateri Zuni and Roberta Rael, and audio editing from Ramon Garcia. Tonight's interviews were conducted by Kenya Alonso, Edgar Cruz, and Roberta Rael. We would also like to thank the Media Makers of Color Alliance, for uplifting the stories that are critical to narrative change in media. This production was recorded in the 89.9 FM KUNM studio in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can peruse our multimedia content and listen to our podcast, which is also available on SoundCloud and iTunes. We're also active on social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D., Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Carl Nalma Health Foundation, the Albuquerque Community Foundation, and of course all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. We'll continue with another song, What's Happening Brother, by the great Marvin Gaye. I'm Edgar Cruz. And I'm Jakia Fuller. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word. So stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Slightly behind the time